You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. From the garden to the temple to the church. If you've read the Bible, okay, you know that as far as... um, Mankind goes. Its origin, of course, God is the creator. God um, made Adam from the dust of the earth. <laughs> Ultimately, we came from Adam, and then Eve was made from the rib, it's the side of Adam. Adam was placed in this garden. Adam was given a task to do. Something happened, though. Adam failed. Adam sinned. And this thing we call as Christians the curse came down upon not only Adam and Eve for their violation of God's law. But it affected uh, everyone since that is born by virtue of natural generation, a human father and a human mother. There's one who was a man who came, actually two, three. By the way, did you know there are three human beings that have existed on the face of the earth that don't have a biological father and mother like the rest of us? Adam, Eve, and our Lord. This curse comes... Okay, we call the fall into sin by Adam and Eve brings this curse from heaven where because they were rebels, they rebelled against God, he curses them. But he also curses the serpent. And we, reading the rest of the Bible, we realize there's this curse that's going to be removed that also affects the creation itself. The creation is longing to be set free, Romans Chapter 8. So at the beginning, you have this garden and this apparent paradise, okay? But then a catastrophic fall into sin. God pronounces curses uh, upon the man, upon the woman, upon the serpent. And in that serpent curse, the curse uh, upon the serpent or the devil, is this promise that the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. If you tease that out in the rest of the Bible, uh, you can hear words like this. The gospel of uh, the, the the apostle John says, "The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil." Skull crushing seed of the woman is promised. When Jesus comes on the scene, he is a skull crusher. He is a, a conquering warrior that destroys the devil and all the effects of the devil's work on the earth, and also saves those affected by the the duping ministry of the devil, um, and brings them to glory. The Bible then is, in one sense, it's about a messed up garden that gets brought into this state of existence. We'll call it New Jerusalem, New Heavens, New Earth. That's the language of Scripture. And it gets brought to that wonderful condition, eternal state, Emmanuel's land, according to the hymnal. Not by virtue of, you know, us collectively saying, you know, how can we get better at being humans? How can we be use the resources granted to us by Mother Nature? How can we do that better and, and tinker with these things so that the evolutionary process ends up uh, producing a utopia, a peaceful, harmonious place where we get hugs and kisses from each other all the time? And nobody's uh, accused of having toxic masculinity. Or toxic femininity, either. Now, the answer, the answer, this is how liberals in the 19th century and the 20th century 
uh, viewed religion. Religion can be a crutch, a helpful thing for us, because we're kind of messed up, we need help, to help us produce this perfect society. There will be a perfected society, by the way, but we're not the ones that bring it to perfection. The answer of Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? He became one of us for us and for, us, for our salvation. You read the whole Bible, you'll see that the garden gets messed up, and then, then there's these kind of weird things that occur periodically. Have you ever read the book of Genesis, and you see this? there's an altar there. Abraham makes an altar. Other, other of the patriarchs, they make altars on these little mountains or hills and they they experience God there and then there's Mount Sinai and there's other mountains there's these high places where God is revealing himself to people and and I know if there was a time when I read those things I never thought twice about it but if you read the whole Bible you see oh this garden gets messed up God pronounces these curses couched in the curse upon the serpent is actually a promise of hope for mankind. And slowly but surely, the unfolding story of Scripture is, uh, is given to us to present to us God's plan to bring the sin-stained creation to glory. If you haven't figured it out yet, we're not in glory. You're not glorified. You're not either. Man, you're especially not. Or me either. You're not either. But one day we'll be brought, all the sons of God will be brought to glory. So what I'm trying to do in this series of sermons is kind of give a flyby overview of the whole Bible in one sense from one of those from and to messages from uh, the messed up garden to this glorious thing the Bible calls new heavens and new earth. And the way we're doing this first is comparing the end of the Bible it's the beginning of the Bible. The reason why we're doing that is because reading Revelation 20 through 22, the last three chapters of the Bible, you'll see that themes are picked up there that are first introduced to us at the first part of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you want to think in literary terms, sometimes this, help, this helps. The Bible, first of all, uh, narrates for us a plot. A plot is a story that usually asks some questions or has a has some twists in it. There's a problem. Something occurs at the beginning, like in movies, if it was a murder mystery. Some sort of murder occurs at the beginning, and the, uh, as you work your way through the movie, little bits and pieces of information help you put it all together. You start to see things that you didn't see when you first heard about or first saw the murder, uh, you, they gave you more background and things like that, and by the end, it's solved. Okay, the scriptures and others have said this about the scriptures, somewhat similar to that. It has a plot, has a storyline, and has a resolution. You know what the resolution is? The incarnation of the Son of God, who became man for us and for our salvation. The ultimate answer to all the earth's problems is always, ultimately, Christ. The Bible is very, in that sense, Christ-centered. So last time we looked at uh, the fact that the Bible is very diverse in some senses. We looked at the unity of the Bible, starting to looking at it, by making seven observations upon the end of the Bible and the beginning. And since it's seven observations, that's the number of perfection, then everything I'm saying is correct and right. That's a joke. It's a joke if you're here for a visitor or haven't heard me preach before. 
So what we did last time, two weeks ago, is I started to observe seven things about the relationship between the end and the beginning, um, which I think helps us understand the middle as well. I'll just state the first five because I'm on number six. I should get six and seven uh, in today. We went over these last time. First of all, the devil who first appears in Genesis 3 ends up thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty good news. The diabolical one, the devil, the one who hates God and is the enemy of God's people, ends up losing. He doesn't win. It might look like he's winning, or it might look like, if you read the whole story, he won that battle or skirmish or whatever. But ultimately, as Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He's on a chain. He only does what is permitted by the divine power and wisdom. He ends up being thrown into the lake of fire. The serpent of Genesis 3, by the way, is identified as the great dragon, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. But if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it doesn't, use, it doesn't say, hey, look at the serpent of old. It says the serpent. It doesn't say, hey, that's Satan. And it doesn't say, there's a dragon. And it doesn't call him the devil. So how can I say, call him that? Well, I can call him that because God told me that's what we ought to call him. And did you hear him say it? If you read Revelation 12, 9, and if you read Revelation 22, you'll hear God say, that is the dragon of old. That's the serpent. That's Satan. That's the devil, at least a tool of the devil. So he's there at the beginning. He seems to win, dupes Eve, dupes Adam, causes, wreaks havoc on the, on the garden. They get excommunicated from the garden. They get kicked out of the garden, the special dwelling place of God among men on the earth, at least the first, first one. And the devil seems to have won, but by the end he loses. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So the lamb wins. Second observation made last time, the first heavens and the first earth of Genesis 1-1 become a new heaven and a new earth. The very familiar words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's at the beginning of the Bible. Well, at the end of the Bible, it says this, then I saw a new heaven, this is Revelation 21-1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And Peter tells us that in this new heaven and new earth that we're look, that Christians are longing for, there's only righteousness there. Well, we can't be in the new heavens and the new earth because there's not only righteousness in this age. It must be referring to something in the future. So the first heavens and earth gets, gets purged of all unrighteousness and ends up being a new heaven and new earth. Third, the tree of life first revealed in Genesis 2 ends up on the new earth. Revelation 22 two says, on either side of the river was the tree of life. This is like kind of almost like weird, mysterious. There is a tree of life in the garden. If you've read it, you know. But there's this tree of life in the eschatological, in the future state of uh, the created realm. Tree of life must be a <laughs> symbol of something, right? can't just be like a physical thing that has no symbolic meaning. Anyway, the tree of life is there at the beginning. The tree of life is somehow, someway there at the end. Fourth, God will dwell among all the citizens of, of the new earth, we made that observation last time, Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the, 
from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among men. That concept of the tabernacle, um, God manifesting himself to, to, to people on the earth, uh, dwelling, that's temple language. He will dwell with them, all of them. Does God dwell, manifest his presence to everybody on the earth as, we, as I now speak? And the answer is no. But there will come a time when all earth dwellers uh, will be those who are uh, God dwells with, manifests himself to. Now that's not happening now. That's going to happen in the future. Is that happening now? Yes. And where is that concentrated most clearly? It's concentrated when the church assembles because the church gatherings are a bunch of us who are in Christ. Special dwelling place of God in the spirit is created, not the building, but the gathering itself of these people. And it's most like glory. Uh, believe, I've said this before. Local churches uh, gatherings on the Lord's Day are, are the most like glory meetings that you'll ever be in. If you look around, you're going, this is most like glory? Wow, we're pretty pathetic looking. At least, at least some of you are. And it's not the way we dress. It's not even the fact that we're meeting. It's the promise of God when priests assemble. We're, we're priests. We'll get to that in a few weeks or months. Uh, when we assemble in the name of Christ, according to the word of Christ, there the spirit of Christ is present. And uh, you have the people of God in the place he's appointed all under his rule in church gatherings. That, that's what we have in glory all over the earth. The uh, prophet Isaiah says, the Lord created the, the earth to be inhabited. The Lord did not create the Garden of Eden to be the end okay, of dwelling with men on the earth. It was to be all over the globe. Uh, obviously, sin caused a rupture in that, but the Lord Jesus will, uh, will overcome that. So God will dwell in the eternal state with all the citizens of the new earth. And then the last one we looked at last time was there will no longer be any death in the new earth. Now that, that's odd, not odd, but it's not what we experience. We don't experience no death now. We, uh, we know that some people take their last breath. We've, we've seen it, some of us have seen it happen. Um, most of us have known somebody Maybe all of us have known somebody that has died. And the pain and the, the hurt and the longing, the sorrow that comes with us. But the Bible says this, there will no longer be any death. That's this side of the, this end of the Bible. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, there will no longer be any death. Now, when was death first introduced into the theater of man's experience? Way back here in, Revel in, Revel in Genesis chapter 3, right? Uh, he took of the fruit and he ate. Um, and Paul, reflecting back on that, says death came. Death came because sin, violation of the law of God, occurred in our representative, our federal or covenantal head, Adam, way back in the beginning. But at the end, the, the, the uh, eternal state, there will no longer be any death. Well, a sixth observation tying the end of the Bible with the beginning is this. The New Jerusalem is described with a symbolic language often used of temples. 
Now, you're probably saying, man, that's, that's a great statement. That's why I came to church. I wanted to hear about the New Jerusalem being described with symbolic language often, neat, uh, often used of temples. That's the, I was telling my, my wife, her husband, last night, I can't wait to hear about the New Jerusalem being uh, described with the symbolic language often used of temples. Most likely nobody said that. Uh, if we had a banner uh, sign someplace on the freeway and it was flashing... Uh, come GRBC, you get to drink water and coffee and, and uh, sing wonderful songs and hear about the New Jerusalem being described with symbolic language often used of temples. I don't think it's going to attract a lot of people, right? But it's very important. Now, some of you know a little more than others that this is important. This thing at the end, New Jerusalem, city of God uh, is what uh, Augustine called it many, many years ago. The eschatological state, a technical term meaning the new Jerusalem or the city of God or that which is going to come in the future, the new heavens and the new earth, is described with a symbolic language used of temples all throughout uh, the rest of Scripture. Very interesting. A A temple is the special dwelling place of God among men on the earth. The first one is the garden, which we'll see in a while. But listen to Revelation chapter um, chapter 21. Uh, actually, I'm just going to read verses 16 through 18. This new Jerusalem, this eschatological city, is described as a cubed city of pure gold. This is Revelation 21, 16 to 18. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as, it, as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. That's an important statement, huh? What does that mean? I don't know. It means that angels measure like we do. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, very symbolic language. Uh, I believe uh, many others agree with me. Here is the first part of that passage in Revelation 21.10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God or brilliance is like a costly stone. Okay, so now we have precious stones and metals and all this kind of stuff here. Jasper. Great and high wall, twelve gates, twelve angels gates uh, at the gates of the twelve. Uh, twelve angels at the gates. Names were written on them. all this kind of stuff that evokes or calls uh, into should call into our minds the fact that you know these kinds of things have been said before about something other like the temple and I think the garden as well, like Israel's temple and the Garden of Eden. But now it's being saying about something in the future. That seems to be universal. All people are going to experience the same thing in that new heavens and the new earth. Now, this new Jerusalem is described as a cubed city of pure gold. The other, only other golden cube in the Bible is, some of you know this, the inner sanctuary of Israel's temple called the Holy of Holies. That's a gold, the, old, the only other golden cube in the Bible. 
which was obviously the special place, the dwelling place of God with man. Listen to 1 Kings 6.20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, 20 cubits in height, and he overlaid it with pure gold. Okay, so you have a cubed entity here, and you have gold. You have a, some sort of cubed entity there, and you got gold, right, at the end as well. Now listen to Genesis 2, 10 through 12. Now, a river flowed out of Eden. Remember, over there in Revelation 22, he took, uh, 21, he took me to a high mountain. Now, watch this. At the beginning of the Bible, we read, Now, a river flowed out of Eden uh, to, to water the garden. And f- which way do rivers flow? Downhill, right? So, Eden must be up. It's a mountain. We'll see it called a mountain later. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It, fl- it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now we got gold. Okay, We had gold at the end, uh, and now we got gold at the beginning, and water flowing from down from something. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. So it's important to note... That in Revelation 22.1, John was shown a river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. So this, I think, entire New Jerusalem appears to be uh, what one writer called an expansion of the Holy of Holies. Uh, in other words, a special dwelling place of God among men, or as the man I'm referring to, says, the entire creation has become the holy of holies. That is, a place where God uniquely manifests himself to creatures. All the creatures there, creatures created in the image of God, men and women. Uh, one more observation on rivers in light of Revelation 22.1 may help. I always said this, rivers flow downhill. That's pretty profound, huh? Wow. You know what? I, I have a bachelor's degree and two master's degree and a, and a doctorate just to tell you that rivers flow downhill. Okay? Since this is so, the rivers of Eden, remember Genesis 2, 10 through 12, they're rivers of Eden. They flow downhill, which puts it uphill or upon a mountain. Now listen to Revelation 21, 10 and 11, and 22, 1. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And then he showed me a river of the water of life. So this new Jerusalem is pictured as having a river flowing out of it and connected to a high mountain. The special dwelling place of God among men in the end of the Bible depicts a river of life and a high mountain. Now, where do you think these rivers and river of life and high mountains and high mountains and gold and all that stuff, where do you think that type of language came from? Do you think uh, John uh, made it up? Do you think that John um, heard an audible voice and just wrote about it and wasn't conscious of anything about its meaning at all? Or do you think John, by the grace of the Spirit and the mysterious thing we call illumination and inspiration 
was enabled to write about the future using the language of the past. I think that's what he's doing. He's talking about the future, but he's using the language of the past. And this type of language ends up starting in the first three chapters of the Bible. But listen to a to an entry. It's time to breathe and relax our minds, right? I realize this is like kind of dense, not in the sense of dumb. Hopefully, well, some people might think it's dumb, but packed, right? I'm, I'm, I'm requiring you to think. I, I'm assuming, by the way, that if you love Christ, you love to think about Christ and love to think about his word and, and you want to be challenged. That's why some of you like R.C. Sproul. Why? Because, wow, he challenges you to really think. He uses big words, but he defines them, doesn't he? Some people say, don't use big words. People, they use big words all week. Uh, and uh, they're tired of thinking. When you come to church, you should just be able to relax your mind. No. should be just the opposite. Our intellects should be engaged on the Lord's Day at public meetings like no other time during the week. Because we're trying to, we're trying to say, you know what? I've I got to live during the week. I realize that. But... Right now, I'm bringing my soul with other brothers and sisters in the presence of God. I want to contemplate his majesty. I want to see his greatness. I want to be reminded of his promises. I'm weak. I'm feeble. I need these kinds of things so that I can go out and live. So I'm trying to tell you that I'm going to read a dictionary, a Bible dictionary article to you, not the whole article. It's called The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, InterVarsity Press published it many, many years ago. But listen to this. Almost from the beginning of the Bible, mountains are sites of transcendent spiritual experiences, encounters with God, or appearances by God. Ezekiel 28, 13-15 places the Garden of Eden on a mountain. Abraham shows his willingness to sacrifice Isaac and then encounters God on a mountain. God appears to Moses and speaks from the burning bush on Oreb, the mountain of God. And he encounters Elijah on the same site. Most, they put all the texts. And we're going to look at some of these later on in this series. Most impressive of all is the experience of the Israelites at Mount Sinai, which Moses ascends in a cloud to meet God. A similar picture emerges from the New Testament. You might be sitting here going, that's Old Testament stuff. I've read it. I see it in there. But it has nothing to do with the New Testament, these mountain stuff. Now listen, a similar picture emerges from the New Testament where Jesus is associated with mountains. Jesus resorted to mountains to be alone, to pray, and to teach his listeners. It was on a mountain that Jesus refuted Satan's temptation. That's pretty interesting, huh? It was on a mountain that Jesus refuted Satan's temptations. Jesus is also called the last Adam by Paul. Therefore, there's a first Adam, Adam in the garden. Eden was on a high place. Rivers flowed out of it downhill. Edom was the first mountain or temple of God. And who won that battle between the image bearer, Adam, and the devil? The devil won. And now we have Jesus, the last Adam, coming and refuting Satan's temptations on a mountain. Uh, Luke 4 and Matthew 4 have, are the passages where after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. Isn't, that's the antithesis of where we find the, the devil first tinkering with men. It wasn't out in the wilderness where Adam was tempted. It was in paradise. It was in the garden. Then he gets kicked out 
of, of Eden, out of paradise. And so if paradise is to be won and glorified, it has to be in this wilderness that we're kicked out into. It has to be won out in the wilderness. Jesus is going to beat the devil by not succumbing to his temptations. By the way, when you read Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the temptations, the temptation narratives, quite often the way they are preached is, you see Jesus, he's fighting the devil with the Bible, he's quoting scripture in the, in the teeth of satanic attack. You need to uh, memorize the scripture and you need to cite it when you're being tempted. Temp- tempted? Tempted, which I agree with, by the way. I think it's a good practice. Memorize the word of God. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, that God is faithful, won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. That's an important verse to memorize and to remember and to fight against the devil with. But I don't think that's why Luke 4 and Matthew 4 are in the Bible, so that preachers can you know, browbeat their hearers. You don't, you don't uh, memorize Scripture enough. Jesus memorized Scripture. Look at him quoting Scripture. You know what your problems are in life? You don't memorize the Bible enough. How many are going to say, no, I memorize the Bible enough. Of course we don't memorize the Bible enough. All right, that's that's not why it's in there. Yes, Jesus had scripture memorized. He's not setting an example merely for us there. He's conquering the devil for us on a high mountain. Anyway, let's keep going here. He was also transfigured on a mountain and he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. You think God's trying to say something about mountains? You know what some people conclude from this? Therefore, when we have retreats, where do we go? The mountains. Why? It's holier up there. You're closer to God. I think it's more of a, look at, those are phys, these are physical things. This, this really happened. Okay? It's not like a figment of the writer's imagination. But they have to be more than just uh, common occurrences. Wow, that happened a lot, but it means nothing whatsoever. God is manifesting himself to his people in these unique places at times. It's got to be symbolic of something. And uh, I think we'll see that as we continue on in here. Jesus also designated a mountain in Galilee from which he gave the great commission to the 11 in, in Matthew 28:16. but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Jesus is both the tabernacle of God uh, and the word became flesh and a temple. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. You know those words from the Gospel of John? They're very important. But they destroyed the temple. They killed him. The temple was his body. God tabernacling in human flesh. That's John 1.14. Jesus said, if you destroy me, that is, if you kill me, I'll raise myself up on third day, the third day. So Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Jesus is a temple who was destroyed, who raised himself up. But Jesus also builds a temple. The church is called a temple of God, the dwelling place of God in the spirit, um, which is a very important concept to think about. He uh, is both the temple who was destroyed, the temple who was Um, rebuilt by his resurrection. He's a rebuilt temple. You ever thought of Jesus as a rebuilt temple? You probably don't usually think about that, but he is. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He raised it up. Took 40 
and six years to build that physical temple? Uh, John tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So he's a rebuilt temple who's also expanding the temple, the church, throughout the earth. He builds the new temple. This temple is called his body, the church. And there's more I could say, but I'm going to number seven. Number seven, the curse that was inflicted. uh, By the way, all that was under the same heading. When everybody came to hear the new Jerusalem is described with the symbolic language often used of temples. So we had a temple at the end. But I'm saying, and I'm going to argue, the first temple was the garden. And then you have these little templeettes. Then you have the, the tabernacle, the, the thing he told them to build and carry until they built a temple in the promised land and put it there, and the Holy of Holies was there. And then you have uh, promises of future rebuilding of temples in the Old Testament prophets. And then you have Christ as a destroyed and rebuilt temple who also builds a temple, the church. And then you have this new heavens and new earth, this cubed city, which I think is a symbol uh, of the fact that when this occurs, everybody that's in that place is away from the devil, away from uh, his minions, away from uh, anything uh, sinful and destructive and in the safe presence of Almighty God enjoying um, fellowship with him and service as well. Number seven is the curse was, that was inflicted in Genesis 3 due to Adam's sin is no more. Revelation 23, 22.3 says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Now, because man did not serve God as he was required to, the curse came upon man and the earth. Remember the the creation is longing for the revelation of the sons of God, Romans chapter 8. In the eternal state, however, there will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be any ill effects or negative effects due to the presence of sin. I think I've said this before. Uh, I can't illustrate that. I can't say, you know, it was like last week when I... I went a whole day without sinning and there was no corruption in my body and I just had these angelic thoughts all day. Uh, you know, it happens quite often with me, to speak frankly, very humbly as well. You know, it's just like, no. Um, we don't have perfect days. We, we've never had a perfect day. Our thoughts now, as the best thoughts you might have had of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the mystery of the Trinity, the the unity of the divine nature, and yet the the distinct persons all called God, and and this plan of redemption, and, and the best sermons you might have sat under, the most wonderful hymn lyrics that you might have sung, and your souls, you know, getting ready to, to pop or explode, like somebody said one time. It still, it fails in comparison to, to the future. And so, uh, what is it going to be like to have no curse, no, no ill effects of, of sin in our service to God? Um, I don't know, but I know this much. I mean, I can't explain it to you experientially as if I've experienced it. And you can't either. I can tell you it's the hope of the gospel, though. It's the hope of Christianity. 
It's the confident expectation that what God says he's going to do, he's going to do. He did it with reference to his son who suffered and then entered into glory, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Glory is started by resurrection. Uh, if he did it with his son, whatever he did with his son, he's going to do for the benefit of his son's sons. By the way, you know the Son of God has sons. He's going to bring many sons to glory, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Now, we're going to stop at some point, so I need to start landing this, this uh, sermonic plane. We've noted the Bible ends with a remarkable vision of God coming to dwell with humanity on a new earth. Okay? That's quoting somebody. I must have said that last week. Both, but excuse me, but the Bible started with God in the midst of his people in the Garden of Eden on a mountain with precious stones presence, with wa- pres- present, with water flowing out of it, and in a context where Adam, I think it was the first prophet, priest, and king, was supposed to subdue the earth and fill it with other image bearers who were like him. Remember, Adam's responsibility was not Edenic exclusive. That is, uh, only Eden. Uh, a friend of mine once said, Hey, pastor, since God made Adam a gardener, wouldn't that be like the most virtuous vocation we could have now, being a gardener? And I, I, I forgot what I told him, but uh, no, I told him uh, no. But Adam's, Adam's task, Adam and Eve, their task was not just Eden. I think that we could say what their task was, what they were be, to be the agents through whom Eden became universalized on the earth. That is, sinless sons of God in the special place of God, special presence of God, all throughout the earth. What does that sound like? Sinless sons of God in the special presence of God all throughout the earth. That sounds like Revelation 21 and 22, doesn't it? That was the intent or plan A by God. Sinless sons of God all throughout the earth. The Lord has made the earth to be inhabited. With whom? Wicked, vile, God-hating, Christ-cursing sinners? Or sinless sons of God? The answer is sinless sons of God, as I've said before. And we're not in that state. This is not the sinless sons of God in the special presence of God all throughout the earth state right now. That is the promise uh, of the scriptures. Adam failed to do that. He sinned relatively quickly. Uh, And he sinned as our federal head. And he plunged himself and his posterity into a state of misery and death. Now, these uh, considerations that we've been thinking about this week and two weeks ago uh, indicate that the end of the Bible is the beginning brought to a better state of existence, right? The end is actually the beginning, but it's brought to a much better state of existence. How do we know? There will be no death ever in the eternal state. There was death in the first state, though, but there will be no death. No sin, no sorrow, only righteousness dwelling. Not only was the beginning brought to its goal by the end of the Bible, it is brought to its goal not from its created state, right? We have the created state, then we have the fall into sin, and a cursed state. 
of existence. So mankind and the earth is cursed. So what Jesus does is he doesn't take us back to the garden. Okay? He takes the sin-stained, God-cursed world of men and the earth to a state of existence better than the garden. Because in the garden, they could be duped by the devil, and they were. In the New Jerusalem, where's the devil? And the devil was cast into the lake of fire. He's gone. He's not able to dupe anybody there. So our Lord Jesus brings the sin-cursed state of the creation to a better state than it was in its initial giving. Now, so I think at the beginning I talked about there's a riddle that's usually at the beginning of a story, a problem that needs to be solved. The problem is... Adam and Eve sinned. They didn't bring, um, they didn't, they didn't expand the culture of of Eden throughout the four corners of the earth. We don't have sinless sons of God in the place of God under the rule of God, and everything's happy and joyful. We don't have that. So the riddle is, how's that going to happen? The problem is, uh, who's going to do that? So we need a solution. There's a there's a plight and there's a, a, a solution. The plight is, the difficulty is, we're sinners, we're guilty, the earth's cursed. Uh, that's not God's plan A at all. The, the, and the, the answer is not a plan B. The answer is to stick to plan A with another Adam, with another head of humanity who has the power and the glory to not only procure the forgiveness of the sins of sinners like us, but who can bring those sinners to glory all the while reversing the curse and putting the creation and those sinners, saved sinners, into a state of existence that is permanent, that is inviolable, that is uh, that, that, that can't, you can't fall from. There's not going to be a time in glory where we're going to say, oh man, I sinned. I fell short of the glory of God. I'm going to incur the wrath of God. I need a Savior. That, all that happened already. So that means that whatever state of existence believers end up in, it's better than the first state of existence that Adam and Eve were in. Being in Jesus is way better than being uh, in Adam, even unfall in his unfallen state, because we're in a permanent state of existence uh, in that state, and the riddle is solved. Of course, you you know you know the hero of the Bible is right, Paul. If Paul was here, he'd kick me in the shins. I ain't no hero. I'm a servant. That's what he'd say. The hero of the Bible is Daniel. What a warrior! David against Goliath. Moses against Pharaoh. Thank you. Somebody said it. <laughs> the hero of Scripture is God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. I have this uh, sentence here. It's actually about, it's two full pages almost. It tells you the answer to the plight of Scripture. And what it does is it, it, it uses terms and phrases 
all throughout Scripture to explain who, who solves this problem. The Scripture then ultimately, if, if we're looking at it fa- faithfully, it's, it's, a, it's got a bullseye to it. There's, there's a target. There's a, there's a center at which all of Scripture ultimately is pointing. And it's the glory of God and the incarnation of the Son of God in, in order to do the work of redemption and bring the sin-cursed uh, creation to a glorious state of existence. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read the whole sentence, but I'm looking at it. It's only 11.16, so i got plenty of time here. But I, here, here's, here's, here's just a taste of it. The answer to all this is the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of, of Judah, the one from Jacob who shall have dominion. He is the great prophet. He's the prophet greater than Moses, one greater than Joshua, the son of David, the child of the virgin, the child born who governs the kingdom of David. He is the branch of the Lord who will build the temple of the Lord and sit and rule on the throne as a priest, the righteous suffering servant of the Lord. He is the embodiment of all that Israel was not, a faithful son of God. He is the one who went forth for for the Lord to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The Lord whom you will seek, who suddenly came to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, He is the one conceived of the Holy Spirit, named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And he is the son of God called out of Egypt, the one led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He is the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The one who said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the word who became flesh, the son of God. He is the one who, you get the point. I could keep going. I'm just going through the Bible using the language of, of victory and, and, uh, and this warrior motif of Scripture. We find a lot of warriors, small w, lowercase w, throughout the Bible that at times you're going, here he is. No, failed. He sinned. Abraham, why'd you lie? What'd you do that for? If I was in that, your position, I wouldn't have lied. Moses, why did you hit that rock? I was looking, we need a warrior. We need somebody to save us. I thought it was going to be you. You know, David, why did you look at her like that? What did you do? Why did you sin that way? You know, all these great warriors, or lowercase Ws, are all failures. Then one comes on the scene, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world, the incarnate uh, Son of God in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, he assumes our nature, born under the law, he assumes our responsibilities. In order that he might redeem, he assumes our liabilities, saves us from our sins and guilts, guilt and ultimately, why? To bring us to glory. That's the answer to all this uh, mess that we see here. It's it's, uh, it's God must do something. God has to reinvade, as it were, the, the, the earth and act um, through somebody who can who can who can do um, undo what Adam did and actually um, do something that's better than Adam's early the initial created state. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus, is the one I commend to you, the Savior of sinners, able to not only wash us of our sins and guilt, but able 
uh, to powerfully um, keep us in a state of grace and ultimately to usher us into a glorious state of existence in this new heavens and new earth. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. It's huge. It's very diverse in many senses. Uh, but when you cut through it all, there's this, this, this constant thing that keeps coming up. And that is, you're going to get glory through your creation. And we know now, ultimately, by virtue of what the Lord Jesus Christ does for sinners and for the sin-cursed creation itself. A lot of things have been said. Would you please bless only those things that are an accurate reflection of the divine intent of Holy Scripture. The other things blow out of our minds. Bless your word to our souls. Encourage your own people. Draw the lost to Christ. Receive our praises. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.